morning. I'm Asadur Santurian, and welcome to this morning's Upbeat Live. I'm the artistic administrator of the Aspen Music Festival and School. And those of you who love to ski, we just had two feet of snow uh, over a week ago, and the mountains are still open, so come on over. Um, I'm going back on Sunday evening, so I can't wait. Um, today, the Philharmonic has arranged a magical conveyance for us to travel in time as well as to travel to the Slavic parts of the world as well as to um, Hungary. This beautiful program of Stravinsky, Bartok, and Janacek hang together for multiple reasons in um, what would not strike one immediately at first, but truly, um, how many of you heard the two seasons ago those Mozart programs at the end of the Philharmonic season? There were serenades, the post-horn serenade, there were other Mozart, what I call sandwiches, uh, with a Ravel concerto in the middle of one of the programs. Those, as well as this program, are very much, um, take their, they take their inspiration from what Mozart would have called a concert, an academy where he presented his music, various styles of his music, uh, divertimentos or serenades or um, even a symphony where um, particularly he would start with the first movement, interrupt the piece and interject with a concerto. Um, if one of his favorite sopranos or castrati were in town, they would be invited to the program to sing one of his own arias and uh, he would continue playing himself, uh, and then they would finish with the symphony. So this program is actually constructed that way. It's not a, an overture concerto symphony program. Um, the Stravinsky and the Janacek are really diversions. Uh, they're not uh, symphonies or overture in, in the case of the Stravinsky. Um, they're diversions. They are, they are meant to be music that just suspend in the air once they've done their job. And um, so now we're in our magical conveyance and we are, believe it or not, with the beginning of this cycle, every work was from 1926. The Stravinsky, the Bartok First Piano Concerto, and the Janacek. So that was a real slice of life of the period of music and working alongside with those composers at that time, of course, were the German and the Austrian and the French composers that you all know and love and hold dear, um, starting with Schoenberg, Berg, uh, Ravel, and uh, Roussel, and Dandy. And these composers were very much. So my point is pluralization, post-19th century, of musical thought was very much the activity at the beginning of the 20th century, and it has not stopped since then. So um, we have a slice of 1926, two Slavic composers and one Hungarian composer taken out of that period. Um, so Stravinsky was invited to write this work in memory of Claude Debussy. Claude Debussy was the dean of music in 
his time in Paris and uh, all the younger composers idolized him, imitated him, and some of them imitated him and exceeded him like Ravel and uh, Roussel and uh, Faure and I, the list goes on. So uh, they did very well, but he was really the person who held salons and soirees or attended salons and soirees. And he didn't particularly care for Stravinsky's music, but Stravinsky was enjoying a great deal of success in Paris by virtue of Sergei Diaghilev and the Ballet Russe, and, and, and some not so successes. If you recall, Rite of Spring resulted with a riot. And unfortunately for this work, it also <laughs> resulted with booing and hissing. Um, and, um, but un unlike Rite of Spring, it's really a nine-minute diversion. It's not going to disturb you in any possible way. Um, it's, not, it's, it's not the early 20th century. You've got a lot of music behind you, particularly since you're devoted fans of the Los Angeles Philharmonic. You get your fill of contemporaneous sound, so you are stalwarts. You are, you're, you're tougher than the early 20th century audiences were. Um, so, uh, by the way, did you know that Brahms' first symphony caused a riot as well? So, tastes change over time. And so here we are. Uh, he submitted this in, in its original form. It was a piano piece. And then he was inspired to orchestrate it. So the piano piece is from 1920. The first orchestration is from later to 20s and then um, through various reasons and various immigration reasons and publication reasons he revised it again in 1947 and that's the version you are hearing today what is there to know i mean he was quite sensitive about the lack of success of the piece and you know he has commented on it that it he didn't write it to please and so on and so forth, but I think those are sort of defensive maneuvers. Um, the work itself is austere ritual which uh, unfolds in short litanies, is what he called. What does that mean? What, what, is that? what does that mean? So they are, first of all, it's scored just for the woodwind section and the brasses, um, and what he does is his usual style, fragmented ideas uh, quilted together in a series, right? That's his style. Um, here, he manipulates the combination of instruments so that you start with the oboes, suddenly it's a brass chorale, then we're back to the clarinets maybe picking up the oboe music, then we're back to a brass with something new, then a solo flute supported by the other flutes, then maybe a solo bassoon supported by the other bassoons. So the ideas are a runway show, one after the other, very segmented, very short, and he's creating tonal color and mood changes. So let's listen a little bit to the start of This is Pierre Boulez's performance with the Berlin Philharmonic.
different combination. The clarinet is now interjecting with the original idea. Brass chorale. So it moves quickly, even though the tempo in general is calm. The ideas are moving very quickly. the flute solo supported by the other flutes. Thank you. So the bassoon picked up the idea and now the bassoon has the solo line supported by the others. Back to the original idea. So these are clearly defined segments. However, they bounce rather very quickly and the contrast is stark. Woodwind, brass, combinations of winds, a solo instrument, um, and he's blending timbre, he's shifting mood, and um, it will climax, but it will move very quickly, and then it will end very serenely as, um, However, there's something intensely moving about the ending. So it is kind of an homage of some sort. I don't think he ever said that it's an homage to those wind harmonies of the 18th century, but in a way it is an homage to that era. And of course he never set out to imitate Debussy. He was paying homage to Debussy, but he wasn't writing music like Debussy. So that will open our program. It's rather very brief, and you might want to cheer them on um, as it's played beautifully. But the second piece, how many of you heard the first Bartok Concerto in this cycle with Yuja? Very good, very good, yeah. That work and this work were written by Bartok for himself. He joins a long line of pianists composers. He had the same ability as Prokofiev and Rachmaninoff in terms of pianistic virtuosity, power, skill. In fact, as a, uh, from early age as a child, he was trained to become a pianist, studied piano at the conservatory, and launched a very bright career as a pianist playing the music of Bach and Beethoven and Mozart and Schumann and Schubert. And it wasn't until 1902 when he heard the Budapest premiere of the Strauss Also Sprach Zarathustra. And that really spoke to him and turned him inwards to consider composition. And the way he went about it, along with several of his colleagues, sometimes even together with Kodai, was to gather the folk music of his country. So they traveled the countryside, sometimes together, sometimes alone, and gathered the folk music. Now you have to remember that um, he gathered, the, but he wasn't going to repeat it verbatim. And he was a very sophisticated, urbane person um, who transmuted this information through his own compositional voice. 
So much of his music is very much informed by the music of his people, but with this very modern, sophisticated sound world that he invented for himself. And through the various performances of Esapeka here and recordings of the Philharmonic, you've heard the music for strings, percussion, celesta, you've heard the violin concertos, you've heard um, the famous concerto for orchestra. Um, all of this a little bit predates that, but with the first piano concerto, with this concerto, he's already established his voice. I had intended to play one of his earlier works for piano and orchestra and, and have you guess who the composer was, but I decided not to do that. That's not fair. Um, and it would have, you would have all voted Rachmaninoff. Um, so he did write works for himself as a traveling pianist early on in his youth to, you know, make some money and perform for public, but those got discarded. But you should dig them up, they're kind of great party pieces. Um, but this is a different kind of power and punch. While the first concerto is quite pugilistic, I mean, it really showed his strength as a pianist um, and his imagination with, that's not me. <laughs> um, this, with the second piano concerto, there is that same kind of power. However, it, it's six years since the first concerto, five years, six years since the first concerto, and there is also subtlety and eloquence. The construction of the concerto is one of symmetry. So the first movement is in his idea of sonata form. He will give you the opening fanfare, which the piano plays with the brasses accentuating and punctuating, um, and develop three, four more ideas. In the middle is a reflecting pool where the pianist calms down and gives us contrasting material. And then for the recapitulation, it's the first set of ideas inverted and backwards. <laughs> oh, it's this information. So if the hands are going up when she first starts, the hands will be going down later on. <laughs> and with the same power and panache. And this idea of symmetry um, is absolutely true throughout the work. But let's start with the first movement. I'm going to play a little bit of the opening. Um, this is Peter Donahoe with Simon Rattle. I will play that again. So the first theme is a fanfare. She has the fanfare, they're helping her with the fanfare. So it starts with a big opening.
So it's, it packs a wallop. Um, given the youthfulness of Yuja and Mr. Dudamel, this piece is typically 28 to 30 minutes. I think it'll come in under 26. <laughs> so um, <laughs> it has so far. Um, so she, Mr. Donahoe is a wonderful pianist, and so is she, but there's that youthful ardor that, you know, adrenaline is pumping. Um, so the density is, is not about the, the, just the quickness of the tempo. It's also about fistful of notes. She has quite a few notes to play. She only has 23, minute, uh, 23 measures of rest. Imagine, that's two blinks and you're done. That's, that's about all she has in the entire first movement. Um, I counted. So, and um, the other uh, fascinating thing about the first movement, including the second movement, in that time period, American composer Henry Cowell had developed this technique called tone clusters where you would put your fist or your hand on the piano. Uh, it's a very specific range of notes, but you would play all the notes simultaneously. So you would have this collision, kind of like your child or grandchild banging on the piano. Well, it's incorporated in this piece, and it moves at such lightning speed, but pay attention, sometimes she will be doing that, but it moves so quickly <laughs> that um, I, I fascinated how she manages it, but she manages it. So that's also incorporated in this. And so with the center of the move is the reflecting pool of some eloquence and lyrical moment. Um, the outer movements, the first and the third movement, also house a solo cadenza, then the recapitulation, so the material inverted backwards. And um, it ends with a big hurrah. And if you feel like applauding, you should. Um, it made me perspire. She's cool as a cucumber. <laughs> the second movement harkens back for me, and it's my impression, to Beethoven, um, fourth piano concerto. Where's this moment where um, Beethoven had this incredible ability to whip up sound from thin air. And in the fourth uh, concerto, um, we have a similar moment where you will not notice that the strings are not playing in the first movement because there's so much else going on. In the second movement, the strings have their moment with the piano. They articulate something. I think it's ether. I don't know what it is. It's not a theme. And, and it's quite, it takes quite some time. And then the pianist comes in with the actual material the, that we want to hear. And here, what Bartok has constructed is also a scherzo, so the movement will build up to this furious frenzy in the middle, and then will revert back to the opening and close the same way. It's quite beautiful construction.
So it's muted. It's very ephemeral. It's not trying to make a statement. It's trying to create this suspended sound world where the pianist will have the first say. two minutes before the piano comes in. That rumbling is the timpani. That's also a page out of Beethoven. If you recall, Beethoven incorporates the timpani in several of his uh, concertos and in in instance also in cadenzas, right? The violin concerto, the fifth piano concerto. Yes, yes, you all know this. Yes. <laughs> um, so it's another homage, but uh, entirely original. And this is going to whip up to great frenzy, and involving the entire orchestra. And then we'll as quickly dissipate and return to this otherworldly sound. The last movement is a rondo. And, and again, it's part of that work symmetry. So we've had the themes, cadenza, recapitulation of the themes, slow movement builds up to a scherzo, back to a slow movement. And the rondo, which is idea, then you divert to another idea, you come back to the original idea, you divert. Well, he doesn't exactly follow that pattern, but what happens is he actually takes all the material from the first movement and remeters it with only the first idea being brand new. And so you're hearing the same thing measured differently, uh, faster, and you don't need to remember any of this. What's the most important thing is that if it sounds familiar, it is, because it is. You've heard it before, but it's been reordered and it's been made slower or faster and uh, harder and uh, you know, louder or softer. You've heard it before. So you're, you're on the journey here to enjoy what the pianist is doing, which is bewilderingly beguiling. Um, and I mean the double redundancy there. And, um, and can, you can imagine what a powerful pianist he was to be able to pull this thing off and not have the piano move five feet while he's doing it. 
So here's a little bit of the last movement. The first idea you're going to hear is new, and then the other ideas, the, the themes are remetered themes from the first movement. There's a great deal of razzle-dazzle in that movement. And believe me, if last night was any indication, she played three encores. Three encores, so applaud loudly. <laughs> and, and, and you will have an extended intermission because I don't know, they clock it in nearly 25 minutes, five minutes less than anybody else, so they're amazing. Um, This last work by Leos Janacek. Well, um, well, Mozart and Mendelssohn may have died young, and thank goodness they left us their works. Bruckner and Janacek didn't hit their stride until their 60s. And um, I don't mean to sound at all like People magazine, um, but Mr. Janacek's muse was 38 years younger than he was. He was happily married to another woman. However, um, Camilla Staslova was the muse who inspired him to write his four famous operas and his second string quartet and this work among other orchestral works. And these are, of course, masterpieces. Um, they met in a park and that was the beginning of this piece where um, he heard a fanfare. And soon around that time, he received a commission to write a fanfare. At that time, the Czech um, countryside, country was not um, an independent republic. It was part of the Habsburg Empire. And, um, but of course, there were nationalistic fervors among the Bohemians and the Moravians and all these folks who wanted an independent country. And so through music and through poetry and through literature is where they voiced their desire and want and fervor for a na nation of their own, for national unity, for a nationality of their own separate from the Habsburgs. So this work very much Janacek considers a, a nationalistic work. So he wrote the fanfare and then he was inspired by Camilla um, 
who was also faithful to her husband, by the way. So that, but there are thousands of letters uh, from him to her. He wrote to her daily for over a decade. Um, she, if you're interested in knowing, she never really responded that often. And um, they did have several meetings, but obviously always in public. His wife was never phased by this, by the way. Um, she knew it was never gonna lead anywhere, so <laughs> she was fine. Um, you can read all about that by, in a wonderful book um, that came out about four or five years ago. But uh, getting back to the music, um, she's important because she was really the muse. Things happened in his life before, so I'm not trying to be prurient, but I'm saying that sometimes the muse is in a form of a person who encourages you just by their sheer being in your life. And that's what she did. Um, so the Sinfonietta immediately took on this diversion life. It's, it's a symphonic work, but it is a diversion. The movements are connected by uh, similarly what Bartok technique was, Moravian folk tunes, but very much, again, synthesized through his compositional world. Janacek was not as... Um, perhaps urbane as Bartok in transmuting these into modernistic sounds. Uh, but what he did was somewhere between Bartok and Stravinsky. The ideas are strung together. They're, again, segments one after the other. And they tend to repeat. So the fanfare requires 14 trumpets, two Wagner tubas, two bass trumpets, the orchestral brasses, and here we go. the repetition and uh, for two and a half minutes um, we have this beautiful big fanfare which builds in massive sound um, and then immediately the second movement is um, retracts so we have uh, it scored for winds four trombones and strings I'll show you contrast, immediate contrast from the fanfare. So right after the big brass crescendo, you have this. So 
you hear these melodies and kind of kinetic accompaniment to them and the, the melodies are going to be thrown from section to section in the woodwinds and punctuation like staccato with the strings and then the strings will take it over. very much a jaunty movement. The third movement, um, the purpose is to cover a variety of moods. Now we're going yet to another place. And um, at the rehearsals of the premiere, near the ending when the movement picks up momentum, the flutist has 30 second notes. And he complains that, you know, this, this is unplayable. And Janacek says, play what, play what you like, but it must sound like the wind. And, um, and Dennis, your principal flutist, is pretty amazing. And what he does with it is throw out pearls of sound. And they're just rivulets of beautiful flute sound. So pay attention to him. He sounds great. And it's near the end of the movement. So we had the big brass opening traction with the woodwinds, with the melodies, and now the strings have this moment to create a repose, but it's going to pick up momentum. beautiful reflecting pool as well in the middle of the work. Next we have a set of variations and again in his hands these are fragmented jaunty tunes that are going to go around um, the various choirs of the orchestra but it's full of splendid special effects. Suddenly Times will ring a bell. You wonder why. And, um, and then near the end, there will be slow benediction like music. Just, this movement is full of surprises. And it will lead right into the final movement. There will be the return of the fanfare. So it bookends with the fanfare. And yet these, the finale is, um, he creates tension. Well, let me let the music speak for itself. So you have this idea and then the strings will circle it with this kind of a, almost like a silk scarf sound. You have the woodwinds articulating an idea and then the strings will shimmer. And this will become two whirlpools eventually building up to the finale.
is a stunning achievement and played magnificently by the Los Angeles Philharmonic. Before I leave you, I'm going to tell you one silly story. Um, for many years, I had the privilege of working with David Zinman, the American conductor. David uh, was very proud of the fact that he was born and raised in the Bronx. And he was a child prodigy as a violinist. Later on, would become great friends with Isaac Stern um, and would conduct Isaac Stern in many premieres as well as standard works. But the gist of the story is in 1940, when uh, Bella and Dita Bartok moved to the United States, they moved to the Bronx. Many years um, later, in the first biography, David saw the front door, photograph of the front door of the tenement that the Bartoks moved into, and he was horrified because as a high schooler, he thought, who's that odd man and his wife playing odd piano music in the evenings? They would throw rocks at his window. And he was horrified to learn that he was stoning Bella Bartok's window. <laughs> so with that, I leave you and the magnificent Los Angeles Philharmonic, the great Gustavo Dudamel, the unparalleled Yuja Wang in a wonderful, magical journey. Enjoy. Thank you.